take seats. Now, I must say, I don't normally do requests uh, for sermons, but in this case, I've made uh, an exception. Uh, we've got um, some spare. We've got spare week, as I said earlier, that we finished Joel uh, a week early, and someone asked about two and three John, uh, especially in light of the fact that we're doing one John uh, in life groups. How does that fit in? Uh, what is it all about? And I think, well, I was thinking about it and thought, well, this is a request, but I do think it's a message that we need to hear. This is a timely word for us as we look at two and three John this morning. So I wouldn't want to deny us anything that would be helpful. And this is something that I think we need to hear again. Now, we're not going to look at every verse, the greetings, etc., all those, those different parts. If you want a verse-by-verse uh, talk, um, I will stick a couple on the website that I did about three years ago uh, here, so you can get them. Uh, but this will be very different from the, the talks that I did then. This isn't a rehash of those two. This is a different message altogether. So there are two real dangers that we have in 2 and 3 John. That's the title that we have this morning, the two dangers. Real dangers that I believe that we as a church face. We as Bethel face. Some of us, I believe, struggle more with the first danger, which we'll see in a few moments. And some of us, I believe, struggle with the second danger more. But John thinks these are crucial to the future state and survival of the church. What are the two dangers? Well, they're there in the two books. And the first one we're going to see, but we're going to hear from uh, 2 John uh, first. Um, okay, I'll, I'll read it to us. Okay, I'll read it to us. Or just... uh, no, it's fine, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. 2 John, uh, that's alright. Um, 2 John. So, you'll find this uh, on the pages on the screen uh, there. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any part uh, or any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greets you. What we've got here in 2 John is the danger of naive under discernment. The danger 
of naive under discernment. Now we're going to start in the middle of that with verse 7 as it talks about those deceivers who have gone out into the world. According to John, in his setting, there are already antichrists about, denying the nature of Christ. Now in the two letters we get different, slightly different heresies, if you like, that they're teaching. Uh, this sort of thing is, is quite common that Jesus went from being uh, God and man to just being God in heaven, so he sort of ditched his manhood uh, and was no longer a man. So one John has sort of one set of heresies that he didn't come in the flesh, and by now they're saying, well, he ditched his flesh when he went into heaven. He's no longer man, and so his manhood was a temporary thing. A bit like others said that his godhood was a temporary thing. So really what they're saying is he's not fully God and fully man. But man for a bit and then God for a bit. Now if you think about it, this is a fundamental thing. If Jesus is no longer man, then a man does not sit on the throne of heaven. Man and God are ultimately incompatible. Flesh is bad and must be gotten rid of. Uh, And uh, manness, if you like, is bad and cannot enter a perfect heaven. You can see where this problem goes, can't you? Then how can we go to heaven if manness is bad? So these antichrists here are opposing Christ. Even though they're talking about Christ, even though they're teaching about Christ, actually they're opposing him. They might even claim that they have a Christ-centered ministry, but what they're teaching about Christ is false. And they're duping others into helping them spread this false gospel of a false Christ. So that's the deceivers who have gone out into the world. They're deceiving people about the nature of who Jesus is. So what are we told to do? Well, in verses 4 to 6, John's command is to love one another. That's what he's really saying in those verses. Um, What you've heard from the beginning, that we love one another. It might seem like a strange application uh, if you think about it, but this is the logic of the passage. You're to love one another because there are false teachers. You're to love one another because there are false teachers. Why is that an application? Why, Why should we love one another in the space of this false teaching? Well, love is always the right response. It's the command of the gospel, as John puts it, there's, there's never a time not to love your brothers and sisters, is there? There's never a situation where that's appropriate. Even if that love causes us to speak hard words if someone is going astray. We're not talking mushy, mushy love. We just had Valentine's Day, haven't we? We're not talking about that. We're talking about real love that puts the other first. And it's not only a command of the gospel. It's a fruit of the gospel as well. And because of that, love for one another exposes false teaching. Love for one another exposes false teaching. If love is a fruit of the gospel, then actually it's something that only the gospel can really produce. In John's gospel, uh, John's gospel, it's a sign to the world that we are truly Jesus' disciples if we love one another, isn't it? John thirteen thirty five. By by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So where there's real love, there are real disciples. Where there's no real love, there are no real disciples. Jesus himself said, by their fruit you shall know them. 
So we know who has the gospel by the fruit that it produces in their lives. So we who have the truth need to show that we're the real deal. We need to make sure that our love for one another is undeniable. It's one of the ways that we defend and affirm the gospel. There should be no question that we love one another. Because true, the true gospel produces real love. Every time we choose not to love one another, we make the gospel less credible. Every time we choose not to sacrificially care for one another, we hand another weapon over to the opponents of the true gospel. Only the real gospel of the real Christ can produce real Christ-like love for one another. And it should produce it in shed load, shouldn't it? It should produce it in a way that is obvious and real. Christ-like love is, is something that only those who have the truth can produce... But it should make them produce a lot of it, shouldn't it? It should make it evident who has the truth and who doesn't. So his first application of the fact that there is these sort of false teachers about it is to love one another. Let's love one another with Christ-like love. Let's show the world that we're the real deal. Let's show other groups what the true gospel really produces. If you think about it, the church should be the most loving community in the world, shouldn't it? What am I doing towards that? Am I letting that love shine through? Or am I finding excuses to keep it locked away? So because there's all this false teaching about we're to love one another. But the other application he gives, which we're going to focus on a little bit more, is to be discerning and not support the false teachers. Be discerning and not support the false teachers. Have a look again at verses 8 to 11. Watch yourselves. So that you do not lose, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. There's a danger here of supporting works that don't honour God. We need to be careful. Because I know this might sound a little bit obvious, but not everybody that claims to be theologically sound is actually theologically sound. Okay, Just because someone says they are, doesn't mean that they are. False teachers who deny the nature of Christ don't come with a badge on, unless they're Mormons. Uh, in which case they do actually come with a badge on. Um, but even Mormons don't want to be known as Mormons anymore. They want to be called the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because they want to be accepted as a main part of the church. They don't want to be known as different. But in most cases, it's harder, isn't it? They don't come with a badge on. Sometimes cults hide their identity in their literature and books I've got whole books on my bookshelf. They've got a little red sticker on them to make you know that they're dodgy. But whole books that don't even mention that they're written by a dodgy group. You have to go to the website that it points you to. And I checked that this week, actually, and now the website doesn't actually tell you what dodgy group they are, but it used to. They hide themselves. Uh, so many books now, so many websites, so many podcasts, so many blogs. If you think about it, there's more dodgy material available now 
than at any other point in the history of the world. There's more stuff around, and we have easier access to it now than we've ever had. Even 25 years ago, within my lifetime, if you wanted to go get your hands on some heretical teaching, you had to go and physically find it, or you just had to sort of wait until someone knocked on your door and passed it into your hand. But now it's just a Google search away. And if you Google some of the quite big questions that Christians have, lots of the top searches on Google are actually by fringe groups, or by cults and sects. Um, Q&A sites that you can go on, you know, like Yahoo Answers and those sorts of things, they're populated by these groups. Whenever there's a theological question, somebody there from one of those groups has got in there. But it's so hard to spot unless you know what you're looking for. They don't come with a label saying, I am this particular group and I think this. They just put their answer there. And it's even harder to spot with churches that make a show of being churches. So not all groups that are dodgy actually name themselves as a particular dodgy group. We recently got FreeSat. Uh, we resisted uh, for a long time, but we got all those extra channels as we were leaving Talk Talk and needed somewhere else to go. And I discovered this week there's about 20 Christian channels. But I'm not sure that I'd really recommend any of them, really. Most of them seem more concerned with your credit card uh, than with your walk with Jesus. And I've been shocked to find the people who get airtime on these things, you know, teachers that you really wouldn't want teaching things. But did you know, when I was a young Christian in the late 90s, I used to watch the, the God Channel and, and that sort of thing. Um, my parents had Sky, and when my parents were out, I'd be naughty, and I'd switch to the, the God Channel. And as a 15-year-old, I really liked a man who, now that I've looked a bit later on, turns out that he met Abraham, Jonah, King David, and Jesus. Claims he has regular visits to heaven. Got his church and viewers to make $54 million so he could buy a new private jet. I say new because he'd always already got four private jets that his church had, had bought him. But it's quite nice to listen to. So as a 15-year-old, only been a Christian three years, I used to sit and listen. I quite enjoyed it. But I wasn't discerning. But in my head I was thinking, well, it's a Christian channel. So this stuff must be okay. But I was wrong. And believe me, there is far worse on now than, than that guy then. In comparison, that's nowhere near what some of the things that you can find. And some of you are sat there, I know, and thinking, well, I would never fall for that. But untruths aren't just from new, shiny, well-dressed, permatan preachers. There are just as much heresy and dodgy things in old books as there are on new TV channels. And perhaps as we read older books, our guard is down more. Heresy is not a new thing. I mean, it was even going on in John's day. Before the Bible had been finished being written, there was already heresy going around within a few decades of Jesus' resurrection. So what we need to be is discerning. What you need is a heresy alarm. You know, like you get a smoke alarm. The better you know your Bible, the more sensitive it gets, doesn't it? The more you're able to discern what's true and what's a load of rubbish. But I think there are four big problems with our heresy alarm. One is that we don't know our doctrine from the Bible very well. Doctrine often is seen as boring or decisive. Uh, sorry, not decisive, divisive. Wouldn't we be more united, you know, if we just got rid of all this doctrine stuff? So we don't like doctrine. 
Second problem is that we talk little about doctrine. So this morning we looked at the hypostatic union and there were some giggles, weren't there? I was giggling as well, I must admit. But if you think about it, it's a huge issue, isn't it? This is the very issue that they're facing in John uh, 2 and 3 John. If you have a dodgy Jesus, that's going to affect the rest of your doctrine, isn't it? The rest of your theology. Actually, what we believe about the hypostatic union is incredibly important, but we don't talk about it, do we? It was great to do the Solid Foundation series in Life Groups, where we looked through the FIEC Statement of Faith. It's been great to do the Heidelberg Catechism last year and the big words that end in shun with the children. But we're all probably less theologically literate in doctrine than our forebears, than people who have gone before us. Would we be able to spot dodgy doctrine? I'm talking here to myself as much as to you because actually I need to be partly the one who teaches you these things. If we don't talk about it and assume that everybody knows it, we're going to end up in big trouble, aren't we? Third problem is that often those groups that are dodgy talk about doctrine even less. Certainly nowadays the trend is away from doctrine and towards self-help. So false teachers often don't talk about doctrine. They talk about you know, how to have a good Monday. That's part of the way that they, they speak. So they're harder to spot. They talk a lot about experience. They talk about how to live your life to the best. But little about the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Often they preach thematically, which allows them to avoid looking at difficult passages, which would bring out some of those problems. That's why I love preaching systematically through books. You have to engage with hard topics. You have to engage with things that you might not really want to talk about. There's no hiding when the Bible sets the agenda. And all this just makes it so hard. I imagine that with some of these people, you could go to their churches for years without ever hearing a heretical statement. But that's because so much is left unsaid. So as we discern, we need to think just as much about what's not being said as what is being said. And the thing that they keep missing out, the thing that they keep not talking about, that will probably end up being your false doctrine. The fourth problem that we have with our heresy alarm is that we switch it off when it's not the sermon. Teaching is not confined to the sermon. All things that we do in some way are teaching, especially on a Sunday. The songs that we sing teach. So we we sang this morning, didn't we? Doctrine, Scepter Song. Well, someone else did that. Uh, The guy who founded Arianism. Uh, That was one of the most successful heresies of all time. It was the opposite heresy to what John seemed to be facing. It said that Jesus was a man, but not God. And it was spread by books, by preachers, but a big part of it was spread by a song. Nobody knows the tune anymore, but it was called There Was a Time When He Was Not, saying that Jesus came into existence, he wasn't eternal. No one knows uh, like so what the tune was, but it was catchy enough to spread all the way from Egypt all the way over to nearly China in the space of a few years. It was lies in musical form, and it paved the way for Arianism to sweep the East, which it remains there to this day. So I'm very careful about the songs that we sing, because as we mentioned actually before with Tots and Toys, they stick in your head. If you don't believe me, go to Spring Gardens. Uh, They can't remember some of them what they had for breakfast, but they can remember all the words to How Great Thou Art, because these things stick in your head. Sermons are quickly forgotten, but songs can stay with us for a lifetime. 
So we need to be discerning about what songs we stick in our head. The prayers that we pray on a Sunday morning teach as we pray them out loud, just the way that we approach God. Even the Bible reading itself teaches as we emphasise certain things in the passage. So false teachers don't need to be the pastor. They could be the one who picks the songs. They could be the one who leads the prayers. And most of us probably are off guard then. But be on guard, be discerning. Don't be duped into helping them in their work by giving them a platform or supporting them. We need to be discerning. So the danger, first danger is naive, under discernment. But the second danger is almost the opposite. The second danger is found in 3 John. I'll uh, read it to us. So just a page over. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly with the brothers when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testify to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of his name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers with them in the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write it with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. So the danger here in 3 John is arrogant over discernment. I put that in inverted commas. Over discernment. The situation here is sort of similar to the first one. There are preachers who are going out. In those days there would be travelling preachers who would go from area to area preaching the gospel. And here, real workers have gone out, genuine workers have gone out, not the false ones of 2 John, but real ones. They're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we can partly see that they're real in their attitude to ministry, can't we? They've gone out not accepting money from the Gentiles. It's a bit like Paul, who also travelled from place to place. Uh, He often worked as a tent maker to fund his ministry. They're taking the gospel to the nations, but they're not charging them for the privilege. So they sound quite different from the ministers of 2 John, who were sort of looking for money and lodgings, it would seem, and some support. Here they seem almost reluctant to do so. So what does John tell his readers to do? Well, in verse 8, he says, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers with them in the truth. We're to support them in their ministry. 
Send them on their way well. Give them what they need to go to the next place. You know, it might be food, a donkey, whatever they need. Be partners with them in the mission by giving them what they need. Now, not all of us are missionaries or ministers, but we can support people in ministry. I know lots of you will have heard of people like Wesley and Whitfield. Have you ever stopped to think how their ministry was funded? How did they afford to keep going across the channel and do all these, uh, not channel, sorry, across the uh, Atlantic uh, and go and do all these amazing ministries? Well, it was people like Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, a countess who paid for many of the chapels to be built, supported workers, paid for a Bible college to be set up. People like John Thornton, who gave away half his income every year. And he also uh, funded uh, George Whitfield as well as John Newton. Had thousands of Bibles printed and shipped to wherever there was need. They're not the people that you hear about in the headlines, are they? But they're there in the background supporting the ministry. And there are thousands of people like that down through history and across the world. From Martin Luther to Billy Graham, ministers and ministries have needed funding. And they've been funded by generous gospel givers. So we need to support genuine gospel ministry. Because the implication here, and the evidence of history has shown, that the world will not pay for the gospel to go out to the needy world. The world won't pay for that. The world will pay for all sorts of things, won't it? To reduce plastic, stop global warming, donkeys to be sheltered, things like that. But it won't pay for those who are proclaiming the gospel. In one sense, we wouldn't expect them to, would we? But it means that we must do that. If the world won't support genuine gospel ministry, then the onus is back on us to do it. If they've got all those false teachers getting people to give their credit card details and and being duped into that, shouldn't we actually be supporting people who are, are actually spreading the truth? John tells us that part of their responsibility is to give generously to people ministering the gospel. But that's not the end of the story. His second plea, and again, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one, is don't be like those who hinder them. Don't be like those who hinder them. Really, in verses 9 to 12, he picks up on this character, Diotrephes, who seems to be the head of a certain church. He's a man who likes to be in control. A man who, we're told, likes to be first. And he's a man that's so arrogant that he thinks his theology is better than the Apostle John's. Think about that for a second. A man who is so discerning that even the apostles aren't sound enough for him. Have you ever met someone like that? He seems to be the leader of the church that John is writing to. And he's not willing to support genuine gospel ministers. He refuses to welcome them. And those who do welcome them and, and help them, he puts out of the church. He's actively out to hinder genuine gospel ministry. I wonder what his motives were. Well, we're told he he likes to be first, aren't we? He likes to be the one who decides who's in and who's out. I wonder what language he used to forbid John and the brothers from coming. I wonder whether he used the language of Marcion a generation later. Well, Paul's okay, but John, oh, no, you can't trust John. Oh, he's not sound enough. Where's his doctrine of justification by faith alone? There's lots of talk of love in his letters, aren't they? It's works by the back door. Don't get me started on James. We'd never have him. He's so hyper-discerning 
that no one out of his own camp will do. And he gets to decide who's in his camp, because he's first. Does that sound familiar? Do you know people like that? There's a danger that we could end up here too. Would we have the Apostle John to preach? What about James? What would we make of their sermons if they gave them to us, I wonder? A line must be drawn. We saw that in 2 John. But where should the line be drawn? Well, I can do no better than quote the Moravians. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. You see, really, in, in the gospel, we have a closed hand and an open hand. The things we have in our closed hand are things like the nature of Christ, justification by faith alone, and we need to cling on to those things. In our open hand, we have other things like mode of baptism, form of church government, views on the Sabbath, views about creation. The danger comes when we put open hand issues into our closed hand. We fall into Demetrius's trap of disqualifying brothers and sisters who should not be disqualified. I've noticed a worrying trend among some at Bethel that we are quite quick to dismiss and disqualify people sometimes. Just picking it up from conversations over the past few years. I am speaking in general terms here because I've had several conversations with several different people. But it's things like when we've read books in Life Group, we've written off whole books because of one line in the book that's clumsily worded or disagrees on something. Even more worrying, often these have been challenging books, with the one line has been used to avoid the challenge of the whole book. And again, that's more than one person. I'm not talking to one particular person. I know that probably the people I've spoken to would think I'm talking about them, but it's something that we do. But let me say, C.S. Lewis said some dodgy things that we would disagree with. Should we dismiss all his writings? Should we avoid Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Martin Luther had a very different view on communion. He even put books like Esther and James in an appendix at the back of his Bible. Should we get rid of Martin Luther's books? Are they all tainted by what he said? Would we dismiss the rest of what Martin Luther said because of those other things that he also said? You see, there's a danger that we can become very selective in our discernment, writing off what is hard for us to accept and keeping what doesn't challenge us anymore. Writing off what isn't to our personal taste and keeping what we're comfortable with. John is very, very concerned that we are discerning. But what he doesn't want is arrogant over-discernment, if you like. An arrogance that makes us believe in things, uh, it makes us believe in all things that we are doctrinally faultless and that everybody must agree with us to be sound. In God's mercy, I pray that we are as close to the truth as we can be, both as individuals and as a church. But we must walk a tightrope here, confident in the truth, but humble in our attitude. Confident in the truth, but lovingly generous to other brothers and sisters. I'm not suggesting for a second that we open our closed hand where it should be closed. That would be the other danger, wouldn't it? Uh, opening up things to, uh, that we shouldn't let go of. But we should be open-handed where we can and should be. 
not writing off things that could be helpful for us. Really, it comes down to what John calls in 2 John verse 3, truth and love. Some of us are really and rightly zealous for the truth. And we must be. Some of us are really concerned that we must be welcoming to other brothers and sisters. And we must be. And it's not a case of 50% of one and 50% of the other. It's a bit like the hypostatic union, thinking about it. We must be 100% of both. We need to be zealous for the truth and welcoming to others. So let me give you some application. Be on your guard against heresy, but don't be a heresy hunter. Be on your guard against heresy, but don't be a heresy hunter. When we read a book, when we listen to a sermon, we shouldn't assume that we will find something wrong. Especially if the sermon is pricking our conscience. The heart is desperately wicked, or certainly my heart is, and will search for a way out when it's being challenged. I'll try and find something that's wrong. But actually, we mustn't assume that every sermon or every book that we read is going to have heresy in it. But if we do find something wrong, don't assume there's nothing to learn from that book or sermon. As I say, if we applied that principle, uh, then we would write off an awful lot that could be helpful. The reformers were completely comfortable in quoting people with whom they had profound differences. But as long as they were right on with them in that particular matter, they were quoting them. If we're looking for complete agreement on every matter in order to say that that person is okay, then there will be very, very few sound Christians through church history. And beware of saying that they must agree in everything, because that's what cults say. History was wrong, and we are right even though nobody has ever said anything like it before. Even the reformers claimed that they were only saying what people had said before. And if you do find something wrong, ask two questions. Where has this come from? And is it crucial? If they're saying something dodgy, where is it from? If it's from the Bible, go back to the Bible and check, because it actually might turn out that it's you that's dodgy. Remember, the whole of our life is repentance, isn't it? Bringing ourselves in line with what scripture says. There is a danger of trying to be more sound than the Bible, isn't there? Just like Demetrius thought that he was more sound than the Apostle John. You see that sometimes when you do things like revising hymns, when they use biblical language. Picked out one, you know, the um, before the throne of God above, you have upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And actually, even in our version, we change it to, I look to heaven and see him there. You can see the point, except for that the Bible talks about people looking up to heaven. So it's sort of trying to be more sound than the Bible, in a way. We pride ourselves on being sound, yet are we trying to be more sound than the Bible? If it's not from the Bible, is it from a person who takes the Bible seriously? If it is, then you might want to delve a bit deeper. You might find that it's a valid conclusion from the Bible, even though you might disagree with it. But if they're attempting to do the Bible justice, I'm always more likely to give them a bit more leeway. If it's not biblical, then is it possible that they misspoke or you have misunderstood their meaning? So, for example, there are sometimes things that just are clumsily, clumsily worded. <laughs> Case in point. 
But, you know, I've, I've, I've been to places where there have been typos in the hymns that make them heretical. And it's not that they're actually trying to be heretical. They've just put the, the wrong word in the wrong place and made it wrong. Or sometimes you just misunderstand what the person is saying. I have a friend at university who was on holiday and went to visit a little tiny chapel in the middle of nowhere. And they had an open time of prayer. And he was, it was a sort of, you know, he was still a bit of a hangover from the 90s. And his first line was, I thank you, God, that you're wicked. And apparently someone got up and walked out. Now, he didn't mean wicked. He, he meant, you know, great. But they didn't understand what he was saying because he was using words that they didn't understand. But let's not be those who deliberately try and read in the wrong thing into people's words. So where has it come from and is it crucial? Not all doctrines are equal. We need to have the key basics in place. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, how we respond. But there are other areas where it takes more time to get there. There are other areas that are not so crucial. If the dodgy bit is a central doctrine, that's a big problem. But it might not be such a big problem if it's elsewhere. But beware, it could point to a larger problem. It could be that you're seeing sort of symptoms of something else. And then, so um, yeah, you've got to ask, is it crucial? And then last application. Don't be afraid to challenge, but think about how you do it. Don't be afraid to challenge, but think about how you do it. I remember when I was 18... Uh, I heard a sermon, it was about a month after 9-11, and uh, there was an elderly gentleman at the church that I was at at the time, who stood up and gave a sermon on how God judges by knocking down towers, and his passage was the Tower of Babel, and his big point was, look, God judged the world by knocking down the tower, he knocked down the Tower of Babel, knocked down the Tower of Babel, except that the Bible doesn't say God knocked down the Tower of Babel, it just says that they stopped building it. So the whole premise of the sermon was, was wrong. Um, now, it was clearly wrong, not from the Bible, but it wasn't crucial. It was a big mistake, but it wasn't crucial. So I challenged him gently. I arranged to get a lift home with him, and I spoke to him gently. as I, I tried to think in my head like grandson to a grandfather. I asked questions. Could you just show me in Genesis where it is that God knocks down the tower? Because I can't find it. There's a way of being gentle even when we're challenging, isn't there? There's a place for the truth, but we mustn't forget love in that. I was not saying that he wasn't a brother. I wasn't saying that he was a heretic. But we still needed to be discerning, still needed to challenge and stand up for the truth. So my request for us all is that we put this into practice. Let us be known as a church that deeply loves the truth. Deeply, dearly, totally. But also a church that loves others. Even those with whom we might not entirely agree. And the two are not incompatible. We can do both. So let's speak the truth in love to one another. And let's push on to our maturity in Christ. Let's pray.